From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. When most Marylanders, or most Americans for that matter, think about the first European settlers, they generally begin that story on the shores of North America. However, in reality, these early colonists had long lives in their native countries before they ever set foot in America. Today's guest, James Etherington, is the director of Kiplin Hall, a historic site in England which interprets the ancestral home of the Calverts, one of Maryland's earliest and most prominent colonial families. On this week's PreserveCast, we're heading across the pond to tell the rest of the story of American colonization. Hey, it's Nick here, and I want to thank you for listening. We've had a dramatic increase in listeners over the past year, so if you're new, thanks for joining us. Also, just so you know, this podcast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit organization, and we depend on your support. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll consider making a quick donation. Head over to preservecast.org to make your gift. Also, I want to thank the 1772 Foundation for their continued support. Now, let's get preserving. James Etherington is the director of Kiplin Hall and Gardens in North Yorkshire, United Kingdom. James has worked in the museum and heritage sector for 19 years, working across the UK in a range of jobs, mostly around museum and historic house visitor experiences and education. He has a passion for museums ever since his first shift working as a museum guide, spending his days helping children dress up in Roman armor. Focusing on leadership, James returned to his native New Yorkshire in 2014 with leadership roles in an archive, a National Trust Historic House Group, Ripon Museum Trust, and finally at Kiplin Hall, where he's found his spiritual home. James is married and has a beautiful daughter and lives in York. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, and today we're very excited to be joined by James Etherington, who is the director of Kiplin Hall and Gardens in North Yorkshire, United Kingdom. Uh, and we're going to be talking about this fascinating site and its direct connections here to the United States and specifically to the state of Maryland. But uh, before we get started, we, we always love to learn a little bit more about the folks that we're speaking with. So, um, James, where did you grow up, and, and I suppose what put you on this path to history and preservation? Uh, well, I, I grew up in York, uh, which is the capital of, of Yorkshire, uh, and about 40 miles from where Kiplin is, and um, very, uh, very proud to be a Yorkshireman, uh, as most Yorkshiremen are. And um, I started down the history path. I was very interested in it. I started to study at university, and I applied to my local museum for a summer job, and I got a job at one summer uh, dressing children up in Roman armour, and I just loved it. It was absolutely perfect. It's what I really enjoyed doing. And that's really where I started. So I've worked in museums since I was 18 and uh, all across the country. And uh, more recently, I started to work in historic houses, uh, first for the National Trust. And then when the job came up at Kipling, which is a museum and a historic house, it was an opportunity to combine my two passions together. And Kiplin, just for those listening, is is not a part of the National Trust. So there are, there are sites that are run by the National Trust, and then there are sites outside of that. Do you have any sense for, I mean, for people listening, how many are within the National Trust, how many are outside, or are you sort of an aberration, or is this kind of normal in there's, terms of the museum there's landscape? About, uh, we're part of a group called the Historic Houses Association, uh, which is uh, mostly independent historic houses, so either owned by the original families who still own them 
all run independently as a charity, which is what Kipling is. There's over 200 people in the Historic Houses Association. Uh, the National Trust has about 600 properties, of which about 300, I believe, are houses. So there's probably about as many independent houses as there are National Trusts, but obviously they're the very big and well-known players in the sector. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, uh, Americans are able to spot a historic house in the landscape. Sometimes I feel like in the UK, you, you sort of trip over them. There, there are so many, and, and they all have such important stories to tell. But before we even got into this conversation, you know, one of the things that sets you apart, I mean, they all have connections to different places around the world, given um, England and Great Britain and the, and the UK's you know, role in, in colonialism and imperialism, of course, they're going to be connected. But but Kipling has a very unique American story and an American connection. And, and I suppose we're going to talk about that and the legacy of it. But for someone who's not familiar with Kipling, um, or even the, the region that you initially there described um, in Yorkshire, what's the region like? Paint a picture for listeners perhaps unfamiliar with the area. Okay, well, Yorkshire, uh, I'll, I'll admit to being biased, uh, being from Yorkshire, uh, but they call it God's Own County, uh, and for very good reason. It's, it's the biggest county in uh, England. Um, it is about halfway up, slightly further north, um, where, the, where things start to narrow, and it's really where you start, where the north-south divide, divide starts for the UK. And it's a really beautiful area. We're from North Yorkshire. Yorkshire itself is split into kind of three smaller areas, north, west, and south. We're in North Yorkshire. It's beautiful hills, green valleys, very lush. Um, it's also a lot of filming is done in the area. So if you see any uh, historic films or anything of, of England, that's probably filmed in North Yorkshire. And it's a lot of the, uh, the green rolling countryside very rural especially in the area we are there's not uh, mostly villages and very small towns but we are sandwiched between the uh, industrial northeast of england and the industrial uh, and kind of manufacturing west yorkshire and we are bordered by our ancient enemies the lancastrians who are the other side of the pennines the big mountains that run down the center of the country so it's a it's a beautiful rather rural area um obviously bounded by some pretty developed areas but the what's the basic history of kipling for someone who isn't familiar with the story which i unfortunately probably a lot of marylanders and a lot of americans aren't where does the name come from when was it built the style of architecture how big of a place are we talking about um and then we'll talk a little bit about the the modern kipling or the the kipling that you preserve today and how it became a historic site but what is that basic history the name and style and and size um, we, there's one of the things that we don't know, uh, and there's a lot of uh, research we still need to do. Uh, we know Kipling, or Kipling, as it was uh, written, was in the Doomsday Book of 1086 uh, as being listed as being uh, part of the land owned by Count Alan of Brittany. Um, and somewhere between then and around 1619, it changed from Chippling to Kipling, and then it dropped the G to be Kipling. Um, so we don't exactly know why, where the name comes from, but the house itself was built um, in the 1600s. Again, we don't have an exact date for it, but it was built by the Calvert family and uh, George Calvert in particular. He was born locally from a family of Catholic background, but um, due to the conditions of the time, he was forced to be raised as a Protestant. Um, 
he was really a local boy done good. Uh, he started off in uh, the service of King James I and rose up to be one of the secretaries of state at the time, which is one of the higher ranking kind of bureaucracies. And uh, he was knighted in 1617. And around about 1619, he was made a baron, uh, Baron Baltimore, which uh, is an Irish barony. And um, he eventually left King James's service and converted or reconverted, depending on, on the kind of story you believe, to Catholicism, which again, at the time, while it wasn't quite the Elizabethan, let's burn them all time, it wasn't exactly the best time to be a Catholic. Uh, so his conversion was quite an interesting approach. And he won, he had bought the land essentially where he grew up. Uh, so he'd, he'd grown up in the land where Kipling is now. And he built Kipling Hall sometime after 1619, which is when he bought built uh, bought the land. And he built it as a hunting lodge, so it was never intended to be his main home. It was intended, I think, personally, as a way to show, you know, show how well he'd done for himself uh, and to kind of remind everyone where he'd gone to. But he um, he wanted to uh, for, found colonies, and he founded two. The first one in uh, Newfoundland, uh, a place called Avalon, but uh, it wasn't. Uh, very hospitable it was very cold the ground was very poor for growing in and it was at a time one of the numerous times where England was at war with France and we understand he ended up fighting some French privateers over the uh, course of his time there so he withdrew from that colony and tried to negotiate for a colony in Virginia but his Catholicism uh, was not met well there he uh, tried to persuade Charles I James I's son uh, to grant him land uh, in the area which now we know as Maryland. And Charles I did that. Uh, unfortunately, he signed the document just after George Calvert died. But his sons took over and founded the first colony uh, named after uh, the, the land named after uh, Charles's wife, Mary, uh, becoming Maryland. And that's where the family kind of wealth came from. They owned Kipling for many, many years. And it would later go on to be owned by other other branches of the family. So it, the names changed, but it it's only been sold once. It was sold from uh, the fifth Baron Baltimore to his father-in-law, uh, Christopher Crow. So it was the Crow family for some time. Uh, when the Crows died out, it was left to uh, another family member the, uh, of a different branch, the Carpenter family, and ended up with the Talbot family Um which uh, the last owner who died in 1971 was Bridget Talbot. And it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we're, we're so rooted, at least in our European or our Eurocentric history here in America, and particularly in Maryland, in the English tradition. So the, the names that you're mentioning all sound very familiar, including Talbot, because we have a very prominent county. Um, and, and even our county structure, of course, comes from England. But um, Talbot County on the eastern shore of Maryland um, you know, th so these names are all very familiar. It's very interesting. And of course, Baltimore, um, the, the, you know, he's the Baron of Baltimore and the city of Baltimore is still our largest city here in the state of Maryland. Um, and I'm curious, you know, I think Americans, uh, we're always very curious about our, our British counterparts because I suppose we feel in some ways we're at least descended from or connected to, and, and some of, some of us like myself are, are, you know, English and ancestry, um, is does the does the Baron of Baltimore does that barony still exist? Do these do these families still exist? Do you still have interactions with Calverts and Talbots and Crows? And I mean, are these are these 
sort of continuing connections for the work that you do at Kiplin? Uh, unfortunately, the the lines are largely extinct now. Um, we do still have uh, contacts with one or two uh, more distant cousins of uh, Bridget, but no Talbots. Uh, sorry, the one Talbot left, but uh, by and large, uh, the Calverts are no longer around the, the Carpenters and Crows, or certainly not the branches that are associated with Kipling. And is is there still a... A, a, a baron of Baltimore is that still a title that you can receive could you could you be could you be knighted James uh, I well <laughs> I don't think anyone will be knighting me anytime soon uh, I come from very peasant stock but um, no I don't believe the the barony is is ex- extant at the moment so this is all very interesting and and I think it's it's interesting as well from a preservation story too and maybe we can kind of switch there so um there's this preservation story of Kiplin, um, I, I presume, because it's now a historic site. So how did it become a historic site? What is the state of the preservation of the site today? What is, um, depending on you look at it, the, you know, Calvert's home or his hunting lodge, um, what what state of preservation is it in? And, and how did it pass out of private hands, presumably into the, the hands of this charity, as you describe it? Well, um that really starts uh, in the kind of 1920s when Kipling was at its height. Uh, we had 5,000 acres of land uh, surrounding it, and it was the family home uh, for the Carpenter family. And Sarah um, Talbot, who uh, was the second to last owner, she started to uh, sell off the land because actually, like a lot of these landed families, Kipling wasn't their only home. They actually had two or three. Uh, so she sold a lot of the Kipling estates to pay for the upkeep of others. And over time, you know, the, the rental income goes down, which means there's less money to preserve it. Then the Second World War happens and the site is used to billet RAF officers, uh, Air Force officers, and it was actually used as a munitions store. So uh, under the trees surrounding it, uh, bombs and bullets for the local air bases were stored. And as with many of these historic houses, the occupants didn't treat it particularly well, and it was quite run down by the end of the war. And it had passed into the hands of uh, Bridget Talbot, who was an amazing lady of her own right, very, um, very willed. And she's the kind of person, she, for one of the other houses she was associated with, uh, there was a campaign to save it, and she picked up the phone to then Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin and demanded that he do something about it, and he wrote a letter and the house was saved. So she was a very strong-willed lady, and she was determined to save Kipling. Um, she tried a number of different schemes. It was going to be a rest home for uh, single mothers. It was going to be somewhere for the scouts to come. It was... Uh, she tried all sorts to make it viable and she just couldn't make it work. And she actually uh, decided to demolish it. And uh, there's you know, literally thousands of uh, UK historic houses were demolished in the 1960s because the death duty on it was uh, too expensive. There was no way to heat them anymore. They were just no longer viable. So she was actually on her way to uh, sign the papers for Kipling to be demolished when she was hit by a taxi. And while she was recovering from that in hospital, she changed her mind. So we were literally a taxi taxi ride away from, from not existing. And she decided to convert it to uh, a charity. And she died in 1971, and it was left to being a charity, uh, an independent charity with a duty to save Kipling for the nation. 
the site was very run down and by this point uh, which we have now there were only 90 acres of land left so it's not a massive historic house um, and that was the case for most of the 70s and 80s it was open occasionally to the public uh, there was a warden who lived on site we do have some cottages uh, that were let out as uh, holiday lets and uh, more recently as uh, permanent homes for people but it wasn't really until the 1990s when gravel was um, going to be extracted from the site that the restoration of the hall started. Uh, partly that had begun in the 80s uh, with our link with the University of Maryland. Uh, quite a lot of the professors there have fallen in love with the place and they actually have uh, what we call the Maryland Study Centre where they bring students over in, in happier times, shall we say. Uh, and they did a lot of early restoration on the site. But the gravel... Um, extraction started in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, they carved out a massive uh, chunk of our land, which was converted to the lake, which we still have today. And a lot of the processing of the gravel was done on our site. And that really paid for the restoration of the site. So um, my predecessor, Dawn, started in, the two, in 2000, and she's really turned it from being a house that was completely run down into a really very attractive historic house. So virtually all the rooms have been restored to as close to the historic photos as we can get them. It's difficult to decide exactly when to restore a house to, and it's an ongoing kind of argument is, do you restore it to the Victorian period when we have pictures, which we know what it looked like then, or do you try and restore it to earlier periods? So it is an ongoing work in progress, and it always will be. But as of now, um, the majority of the rooms have been restored. We have left two of the rooms, the uh, RAF officer's kitchen and bathroom, in the unrestored state. So you can actually see what the hall looked like uh, before it was restored. You can see the, the depths it had sunk to. Um, and then we've started to restore the grounds uh, more recently. So uh, about 10 years ago, we hired a, a gardener, uh, Chris, who is an amazing uh, gardener, and he's been using the historic photos we have of the ground to start restoring the formal gardens. So the walled garden where they would have grown fruit and veg for the hall, that was just grass. We've got some nice photos of American students playing uh, football or soccer uh, on it. And he re he's restored it with all the historic flower beds. He's put all the paths back in. We now have a rose garden. Uh, a white garden and various other bits and pieces and we're, we're working on that that's our next big priority to keep growing our gardens so we're getting much closer to an approximation of what Kipling would have looked like when people lived here it's uh it's interesting but uh a long way to go and i'm curious the way you're describing it 90 odd acres which is you're right is, is not a not a huge historic site in fact i used to manage a historic site here um in Virginia, that was 400 acres. So, uh, you know, I have a sense for what 90 is. Um, do you, do you live on site or do you live, do you commute there every day? I commute personally, but we do have, uh, we always have one member of staff living on site, um, to help look after the property. And can individuals, you, you mentioned like a holiday let, can individuals come and stay on site anymore? Or is that not, not something you can currently do? Not anymore. No. Um, only, um, day visitors uh, can come uh, you know to come and visit it as a historic attraction as a place to visit um or students through the university of maryland so this might be a good place for us to take a quick break and then when we come back let's talk about that connection with maryland and how how you connect that story and what the future of that interpretation might look like and we'll do that right here on preserve guest 
100 years ago in 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States was signed into law and officially granted 20 million American women the right to vote. This mass expansion in voting rights was the result of generations of intense activism known as the women's suffrage movement that has had a lasting legacy on the continued fight for equality in America. In recognition of the struggles and achievements of a once disenfranchised majority, PreserveCast is honored to share remarkable stories of suffragists within each episode this year. Beyond the Ballot is supported by Preservation Maryland, Gallagher, Avilius, and Jones Attorneys at Law, and the Maryland Historical Trust. To learn more about influential women, past and present, or to donate, please visit BallotAndBeyond.org. This week on Ballot and Beyond, we'll learn about Juanita Jackson Mitchell, an attorney that fought racial discrimination, read by Sean T. Daniels, executive director of the Baltimore National Heritage Area. Juanita Jackson Mitchell. In 1960s, most public accommodations in Baltimore were segregated. Black people could not try on clothes in white department stores or eat in most white-owned restaurants. But Baltimore was home to Juanita Jackson Mitchell. She was a member of one of the most prominent families of the civil rights movement. Her mother was Lily Carroll Jackson, the legendary leader of the local NAACP. Her husband, Clarence Mitchell Jr., was influential enough as NAACP's national lobbyist that he became known as the nation's 101st Senator. And Juanita Jackson Mitchell could make her own name in the movement. The Baltimore Sun would write she challenged discrimination almost everywhere she saw it. She graduated from the University of Pennsylvania in 1931 after successfully challenging the school's policy of racially segregated dormitories. When she became the first black female attorney in the state of Maryland, she would practice law despite a city bar association that admitted no black people. She would go on to change the city through law, peaceful protest, and voter registration. She took the case of the Dunbar High School and Morgan State students who were recruited to go into an all-white restaurant and ask for service. At Hoover's Restaurant at the corner of Charles and Fayette Streets, they were told to leave. They refused. They were arrested. Mitchell argued the authorities had violated the students' constitutional rights by using trespassing laws to support the segregation of public accommodation. The students lost the trial. They lost again when the case went to the Supreme Court. But in 1964, the state of Maryland passed public accommodation laws and Congress, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So nearly five years after their demonstration at Hoover's, Juanita Mitchell was able to get the students' convictions reversed. And Baltimore restaurants were finally open to everyone. Juanita Mitchell would move on to the integration of city agencies. She fought successfully for the city to hire black police, social workers, librarians, and to integrate public parks, beaches, and schools, making Maryland the first southern state to desegregate its schools. She spearheaded the voter registration drives that added thousands of new black voters. She once said, We do not beg for civil rights as crumbs from the table of democracy. We insist on our right to sit at the table. She fought for equality and justice until the very end of her distinguished life in 1992 
at the age of 79. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're joined by James Etherington, uh, the director of Kiplin Hall uh, at Gardens and Museum in North Yorkshire, United Kingdom. And we've been talking all about the preservation of the site and um, how it ended up becoming a historic site uh, and the, the great work that has been done to get it back to its historic status and sort of the changes wrought by the 20th century. Um, I'm curious, James, when it comes to telling the story of the Calverts, um, how do you connect Kiplin to Maryland and North America? I mean, you kind of preface that a little bit by saying that there's this connection with the University of Maryland, but has there been a push to discuss sort of colonialism, imperialism? And, and I'm curious, even when it comes to sort of the difficult and the tough stuff of history, what about the legacy of slavery, which was, was sort of landed on, on Maryland shores um, not long after the Calverts um, planted the flag here? Uh, to, to kind of tackle those in order, we, we tell the history. It's actually something we're working more on. It's something we've developed over the last year is our essence of Kipling. We've tried to distill what Kipling is and what um, the key thing that makes us different from anywhere else is this international collect connection. And obviously that the strongest international connection we have is with Maryland. So we, we've started to refocus our, our uh, interpretation of the hall. And we do have what we call the ship room, which is on the top floor. And that is a room where we actually have a model of one of the two ships, uh, the Ark and the Dove, which brought the original colonists to Maryland. Um, it's a, a one that uh, Bridget had when she was, uh, Bridget Talbot had when she was alive. Um, our groundskeeper actually knew her and actually knows that the other one was stolen sometimes in the 60s. So we did have a pair. We did have the Ark and the Dove, but now we're down to just the one. And we have a beautiful map on the, the wall showing the journey of the Ark and the Dove across the Atlantic. And that's the room where we really tell the story of the families and we're actually in the process of redisplaying that uh, due to open next year really focusing much more on the calverts and telling this story we do have an absolutely ginormous painting of george calverts which was done by annette poolan in 2000 it's a copy of the daniel mitens i think uh, original which hang, hangs in the enoch pratt free library in baltimore uh, I, had, I had to get one of my staff to confirm the the uh, the name of that but it's a really uh, lovely picture of him it's the only one we have because actually the only original item we have on site from the calverts is a single letter that we purchased some time ago the vast majority of the calvert archive is actually in uh, maryland itself uh, which is a, a shame of, uh, from, from our point of view but it's good that it's preserved somewhere where it'll be looked after uh, properly uh, in, a, in a proper archive so we are building our our links, uh, building our, our story, as it were, and making it much more central to, to how we tell the, the history of Kipling. And in terms of colonialism, imperialism, and slavery, these, the simple answer to that is not yet. We don't yet tackle those issues. It's, it's a common factor across all of um, the historic houses in the UK that we've been guilty of glorifying our uh, our, our families, our founders, we've been guilty of looking on their achievements with rose-tinted glasses and celebrating, you know, we celebrate the fact that Maryland was one of the first states to have a, an act of religious tolerance, but we don't mention the fact that within a, 20 years of that, they also had slaves. Um, 
and that's something that is on our agenda to to tackle and certainly the new uh, Calvert exhibition will mention um, this in, in more detail. It's something that we are not equipped to tackle fully yet. Uh, there are large gaps in the history of what we know about both Kipling and the Calverts. And we would, uh, if any of, any of your listeners have any stories, information, papers, or any uh, articles that they'd like to share with us, we would really be interested to hear more uh, certainly from the American side of, of uh, research done so that we can start to fill in some of our blanks and to really tell the story in a much more historically accurate way. We can be more even-handed and we can ensure that all aspects, you know, we, we will continue to celebrate the wonderful things that they did, but we just need to balance that out by talking about the less wonderful things that, that happened at the same time. Yeah, I think it's, it's something um, that, you know, is is happening all across the United States, particularly as we're sort of moving through this mo this moment in time and this moment in history. And there's a push, and it's a good push for historic sites and for preservation organizations like ours to tell what we call the sort of the full history. Um, and whether that be good, bad, and different, um, it's important that everyone see themselves reflected in that story. You know, and in, another piece of it, yeah, within 20 years, there was slavery here, but also within those first few moments, there were interactions between native peoples and um, European settlers. And, and that has always been painted in, in a certain way, literally painted in a certain way with, you know, portraits of sort of the, the Europeans bringing civilization and religion to the native peoples of Maryland. And, um, and obviously that was not, not exactly how it, how it transpired. And so there's been an effort afoot, both in our work and the work of others, to try and engage those native peoples. And there still are native tribes um, that claim descendancy um, and have been able to show that descendancy um, from from those tribes like the Piscataway um, and the Akahanics and others um, who still live here in Maryland. Um, uh, and and that, that's just an interesting piece of it. And I don't think it, it, it suggests that the Calverts were bad people. It just paints a more accurate picture of what was going on back then. Um, which is a much more diverse and probably much more interesting story than the one we've all been, or some of us have been telling for years. And it, it's exciting to hear about where you guys are headed. And maybe that's a good place to kind of pivot or transition here, which is um, where are you headed with this interpretation, the story? I mean, obviously, I'm sure the pandemic has been a little bit of a road bump in terms of your ability to engage people. Um, but where is Kiplin Hall headed as an organization, as a historic site, um, as, a, as a, you know, a, institution um, responsible for telling these stories? Um, yeah, it, we've definitely suffered, as everywhere has during the pandemic, although we have managed to recover better than we perhaps hoped. Um, I've got a fantastic team and we've worked really hard over, over the back half of the year to, to restore our fortunes. Um, we are looking to continue to grow as a visitor attraction. I think we've we've always been a hidden gem, is the way uh, we've been described, and I really hate that phrase because no gems should be hidden. Uh, my mission is to make us Yorkshire's sparkliest gem, and for everyone to to visit. Uh, partly because we are a wonderful place to visit in its own right, uh, as a as a site, as a house to look around, as somewhere you can have fun, uh, but also because of the the importance of our historic legacy it touches on as you as you mentioned so many conversations that are happening now and so many things that are moving forward in the right direction uh, so we need to grow our visitor numbers that's how we make our money we don't receive any government uh, funding or anything like that so all the money we make we have to generate ourselves 
And we're building towards a couple of big 400th anniversaries. Um, we will shortly be celebrating over the next couple of years the 400th anniversary of the construction of the hall. We don't have an exact date for that. We know we bought the land in 1619. We've fairly sure it was there by 1625 so at some point between now and 2025 we will celebrate the 400th anniversary and uh, it's also obviously coming up to the 400th anniversary of the foundation of the first colony in Maryland and we want to build our connections with America uh, with our colleagues over there and realistically my goal is that any person from America and certainly any person from Maryland who visits the UK should have us on the top of your to-do list uh, because it, I think it's an important part of the story uh, and we'd like to tell that more. So we've got a, long, uh, a lot of work to do and we, we've got a lot of work in the gardens and the grounds. We want to develop those more as an attraction. They, they have become much more popular over the last years. And actually uh, last year, more people visited just the grounds and visited the house and grounds. Um, so we've got a, got a lot of interesting things in the in the offing and a lot of hard work to do, but I've got a fantastic team and a good 160 volunteers who are uh, dedicated to to making it the best place in Yorkshire. Well, I, I think you're right. As as people start traveling again, and particularly as, as Marylanders start traveling again, it would be a, a good place to visit. And um, you know, you, you know, you and I were discussing even before this interview started ways in which we could partner to tell this story. And there is interest here in Maryland about the 400th anniversary, which is you know ten odd years out. Um, and um, we also have the 250th anniversary of the American Revolution um, in 2026, um, which is a part of that story and what happens to these landholders and um, who have these these uh, great charges from the royal families and they kind of lose everything as a result of that and um, how it becomes a royal colony and is taken over. So there's, there's so many, as you say, so many great stories. You're not lacking in stories to tell. Um, which is great, and it's it's so uh, affirming to hear that this important story is being told, and there's so much effort in um, making sure people learn more about it. Um, before we go, um, and this has been such a fun conversation and just so interesting for someone who works in Maryland history to, to talk with the folks on the other side of the pond about what they're doing about Maryland history, but um, we asked this of everyone, your favorite historic place or site, and in this case, we'll, we'll, let you, we'll give you a pass and say outside of Kiplin Hall. <laughs> uh, well, my uh, I was tricky one this one. My father's family are from Newcastle, uh, so I do have a, a, a bit of a love for Hadrian's Wall uh, and the Roman history generally. But I think I, uh, if I'm forced to pick one, I have to pick um, the Museum Gardens in York. It's the site of uh, St Mary's Abbey in York, and it was also the very first museum I worked at. It's got you know, all the history from dinosaurs up to uh, up to the medieval times, and it's. Uh, Still my definitely my favorite place. Well, that is a, a fantastic answer. Hard to argue with that. And been a really fun interview, good conversation. If people want to learn more about Kiplin Hall, they want to find you online, um, uh, where can they do that and where can they learn more? Our website is the best port of call. It's uh, www.kiplinhall.co.uk, as well as finding out what we're up to on there. There is actually a 3D tour of the building, so you can actually see how it's uh, dressed on the inside. Uh, we've also, on all the social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and uh, there are some videos on our YouTube channel uh, where our previous curator, Dawn, who is... Uh, undoubtedly the single biggest expert on Kiplin Hall uh, tells you some of the history 
uh, both the Calvert history, but also of the later families as well. Well, again, this has been a lot of fun and great chatting with you um, on Guy Fox Day when we record this and uh, looking forward to hearing more and uh, perhaps getting to meet uh, when good times come back again and we can get back on planes. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.